Welcome to the Sonic Boomers podcast, Alfresco edition. I'm Pete. And I'm Maureen. And on every edition of the Sonic Boomers, we get together behind these microphones and we talk about things that we pull off the top of our heads. And someplace else. And sometimes straight from the heart. And those are the hardest ones to do. And yes, we're actually doing this show for the very first time on our deck because it's gorgeous out. It's sunny. It is 78 degrees. I love it. So I, I just got this crazy idea. Let's take the show out onto the deck and, and see how it all works. And of course, the minute we got out here, <laughs> an airplane goes overhead. And it, it probably could have used that instead of our sounder for it, the sonic boomers. It took me about a half hour to get the equipment out of the studio and get it all set up here and arrange our, our set. And not a sound. Right. Not everybody was out of town. As <laughs> soon as we hit the record button, the plane goes right overhead. I figure any minute now, FedEx is going to show up or Amazon right. with a delivery. And then our lawn guy yeah. is going to show up with the big with machine. The machine. <laughs> <laughs> so talk fast. Oh, so it's beautiful today in 78 degrees uh, in a few weeks. We're going to be going for the, well, Maureen already has gone under the blanket several times, and it's going to be chilly. It's We're going to get into the gray days, and what is better than curling up with your blanket and a nice drink and a good book to read? And we've got some recommendations for you on this show. Yes, we do. And I was saying to Pete before taping this, I was remembering back to childhood days when you'd have a summer reading list to do. And then the library would offer a reading contest, and you had to read so many books, and you got a star, and you got a prize at the end if you made your goal. And I don't think I've read as many books in the summer since that time as I did this yeah. summer. For and enjoyable reading for, versus your academic reading. Right. And I'll tell you, it's been really a mind-bending journey going through these books, and I really have enjoyed them immensely, and I've read them very quickly. They're, they're real page-turners, so I hope you she like did. them. She did. She inhaled them, because I, <laughs> I would see her get a new book, and she'd crack that book, and all of a sudden, oh, I'm done, <laughs> yep. and she's into the next book. And you have a, a whole series of books that you want to talk about by yes. this author, Gary McAvoy. Yes. Now, if you like Dan Brown... And he's the one that did the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, and all those stories uh, about uh, Robert Langdon and the, the mysteries that he solved. And a lot of them have to do with the Vatican and with the church. And uh, if you enjoyed those books, I think you're going to like these and maybe like them even more. The books are that I read, are there's actually 10 of them, and they're meant to be a series. Now, you could conceivably pick it up midstream and, and read them, but I think you'd get more out of it if you read it in sequence from the beginning. Now, the very first one is called The Madeline Deception. Mary Magdalene, you may know, is a character in in the Bible that we read about. It's very close to Jesus and uh, the disciples, one of the first disciples of the church, who's not necessarily recognized as such, because she was a woman. a woman. So this story picks up with the idea that there is a 2,000-year belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Almost any Christian will say that that's what their bedrock that's of their belief. That's what we were taught. That's what yeah. we were taught. That's what they believe. 
Now, he posits this uh, idea that what if the Vatican had been blackmailed into su suppressing a manuscript? Now, we know that there are some Gospels that did not make it into the Bible, and they're out there, and you can read them. There's, there's books of, of the various ones, and Mary Magdalene is one of the Gospels that you can read that has not made it into the Bible. So it's entirely possible that there could be manuscripts out there. So he says, what if this manuscript exists and it's suddenly found? Well, enter the character Michael Dominic, who is a Jesuit priest, young Jesuit priest, one of those ones that are very, very good looking, you know, like we used to say, Father, what a waste. <laughs> <laughs> and he hooks up with this journalist who comes from a very wealthy family, and she is working on something else, but their paths happen to cross. And with the help of the Swiss guard, who are the guards that are assigned to the Pope in the Vatican, all of this comes together into a fabulous mystery story about finding these, this manuscript and what he has to do to, to protect it, to investigate it, to figure out whether it's valid or not valid, uh, what the Pope has to say about it. It takes him through the Vatican. You learn a lot about the, the back side of the, of the Vatican, the uh, part that you don't get to see, the archives and, and what's kept there. And it's just a, a fascinating uh, journey through through this whole story. Now, all of these books in this series are essentially mysteries. They're not. They're fiction. They're they're definitely not meant to be taken as documents. Are are they a hundred percent fiction, or is there a little bit of truth in there too? This is what makes them so good: is that there is. Gary McAvoy, the author, has done marvelous research. In fact, at the back of each one of his books, he goes through chapter by chapter and will tell you, you can look it up, what parts he made up and what parts are based on truth, which really, it's something I've never seen before. Even the Dan Brown books don't do that. Mm. And it, it kind of tells you, you know, what what is true and what isn't true about the story and you can form your own opinions based upon that. Did you enjoy these more than the Dan Brown books? I did. The first couple of Dan Brown books that I read, I, I read um, Da Vinci Code first and then I read Angels and Demons and I read a couple of other ones which I don't recall all the, the names and I found I got bored with it after a while and I didn't get bored with these. Hmm. And I think it's because Robert Langdon in the, in the Dan Brown books got to be kind of like a superhero and got to be kind of like bigger than life and, and kind of unbelievable. And for me, the charm in these books is the believability of it. And when you have this Father Michael Dominic as the main uh, protagonist in all of these stories, he is very low-key. And, you know, he, he gets his fame because of what he's done, but he doesn't seek it. In fact, he's a very kind of humble guy. And he, they keep that throughout all the books. Now, there, there's, like I said, there's 10 of them. And I think it's best read in the order 
that they were written because one story kind of refers back to another. Now, you certainly can pick it up midstream and, and read it and enjoy it as mm-hmm. a, a single mystery story in and of itself, but you get a little more depth of character when you've read them sequentially. Now, the I'll just read off the titles of the books, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not going to go through the, the synopses because it's yeah. too you many. might want to hold two of them up so right, well, people the, see what, uh, what is, we're talking this is the, about. This is the last one. The last one in the series. In the series, and it's called, oops, it's the called Clunk. Conf- <laughs> it's called The Confessions, Confessions of, of Pope, Pope Joan. Joan. Now, that, that should intrigue you right That's there. That's already very intriguing. Because we all know that the church does not want, to, the Roman Catholic Church does not want women ordained and they certainly don't want them in power and yet in this book you find that there is a legend and is it hasn't been totally confirmed but there is a legend that somewhere along the line a woman pulled off the deception and got to be pope wasn't one of the, the borgia girls was it (laughs) <laughs> no because those borgias were always pulling some kind of crap <laughs> but anyway this this is the last in the series and that that's uh, just so you can see what it looks like so the the order that you should read them in the madeline deception then the madeline reliquary the magdalene veil those are the three with Mary Magdalene okay and they were written first and they cut the, those three kind of go together the best. And we have the Vivaldi Cipher, the Opus Dictum, the Petrus Prophecy, the Avignon Affair, the Jerusalem Scrolls, the Galileo Gambit, and then the Confessions of Pope Joan. And when you go through all of those, you really get a real adventure going through the Vatican and going through the church and seeing what kind of things may happen or may not happen. Now, Gary McAvoy makes himself available, right, that you can write to him? Yes. In in the back of his books, he has an email address. He has a a Facebook account. I mean, he's totally reachable, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, well, you did write. After I I read a couple of them and I saw the direction he was going in, not not to spoil too much, but this Hannah... Sinclair, who was the reporter, and Father Michael Dominic, they start having feelings for each other. And you can see that it's a real struggle because obviously he's a priest, he's not going to violate his vows, but he sure as heck wants to. (laughs) And she's not going to pull a priest away from his divine calling, but she sure as hell wants to. (laughs) And so I had written to Gary. First, I wanted to know what order they, they should be written in, because the first three were obvious, but then after that, I wasn't sure what, what the order should be, so he gave me the, the list in order. And then I had said to him in, the, in an email, I said, you know, I've got a solution for you. For listen, <laughs> listen. Aren't I presumptuous? Listen, Gary, <laughs> listen to Maureen here. I'm talking to you now. I'm presumptuous, I, I know. Uh, but I think that uh, you're all wrong with this book, and uh, here's what I think you should do. Yeah. No, See? I didn't yeah. say he was wrong, but I, I, <laughs> I thought that if he wasn't aware of the independent Catholic movement of which Pete and I are part of, mm-hmm. that that could be a solution because in the independent Catholic movement— priests are allowed to marry. 
and they don't have to renounce their priesthood. So I'm thinking, here we go. Father Dominic Michael can go and leave the Roman Catholic Church for the independent Catholic Church and get married to Hannah and keep his priesthood and tie it all up in a knot. (laughs) But by that point, um, Gary had already written this Confessions of Pope Joan. It hadn't been published yet, but it was already written. And he's like, I've already dealt with it. Yeah. You're, you're going to like this. Okay. Or, you know. Okay. So and did like, you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gary. You see, you should have done what Maureen told you. <laughs> well, it, you know, it, it wasn't a bad solution. Yeah. But it, it was an unrealistic one. It was like suddenly everything falls into place. And we all know in Vatican t- terms and in the Roman Catholic circles, yeah. nothing, nothing happens falls suddenly. Into place and yeah, and you know it, it takes you know six hundred years for something to change. So, and in this book, it has changed suddenly in three, four, five years, something like that. So, I I was a little disappointed in in that, but be that as it may, it's a spoiler alert. I don't want to say too much, and just remember that they are fiction. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to put it out there like that. If, fact, that this right. is fact, or that there really was a manuscript that negates the resurrection or anything like that. Pure speculation, yep. Your Honor. <laughs> and now I'm going to tell you about the books that I've been reading, and two of these go together. The first one is called Second Suburb. A whole bunch of readings that were edited by Diane Harris about the development, the construction, and the social impact of Levittown, Pennsylvania. Now this is the 1950s and Levittown was marketed kind of uh, quietly as an all white community. They never said that it was going to be an all white community, but the instructions from Levitt and Sons were, you don't sell to blacks. And so if a black family showed up at the sales office and said, we want to buy one of your Homes in Levittown, you were told that this is probably not a good fit for you. And here, we would recommend that you go to this location or mm-hmm. you go to this town. And so it was kind of like a, like an unspoken wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, whites only community. And a lot of families moved in there understanding that premise that they felt that they were okay i'm moving into a whites only community and in fact if you look at the deeds to these homes it was in the deed that the house could only be purchased by a member of the caucasian race that was the way it was termed how do you like that and it was okay it was okay if you had blacks working on your property doing maintenance and trimming the bushes and trimming the trees but the houses could not be sold to black families that sets us up for this next book written by David Kushner it's just a few years after the creation of Levittown Pennsylvania Bill and Daisy Myers decide that they are going to buy a home that is up for sale for them and their three children the Myers are a black family and we did a whole podcast about this. We did so a whole podcast called 43 one. Deep Green Lane, mm-hmm. which was the address of this house in Levittown. The Myers moved in, and several months of hell for these poor people ensued. There were riots. These people did not have a, a good night's sleep for months. 
Crosses were burned on their lawn. They received threatening phone calls. People threw rocks through the the, uh, picture windows in the front of the house. It was total bedlam in Levittown for several months. And it's a very interesting story about how this all happened. The solution was not the Myers moved out. They did not move out. They stayed for a few years, and things eventually did quiet down. Mm -hmm. And they only moved out because Mr. Myers got another job, and it wasn't convenient for them to be there. They they had to move to another location. But they, they were not forced out. But it is quite an interesting story. And I highly recommend Levittown, Two Families, One Tycoon, and the Fight for Civil Rights in America's Legendary Suburb by David Kushner. These two books really kind of go hand in hand, or at least I think they do. I have one other book on my reading list. Now, uh, we are huge Jeopardy fans, and Pete and I love Ken Jennings as a host. Well, it turns out that Ken Jennings actually has authored some books, and I got interested in, in it just purely from that standpoint because I like to see what kind of writer he is and what, what he writes about. So I picked up this book. It's one of his more recent ones. It's called 100 Places to See After You Die. After. The thing is, he goes through all the different religions and cults and sects and things through the years and what their beliefs are about the afterlife and he writes it in a totally amusing snarky way talking about well you know if if you die catholic and you want to you want to have a good experience you go and you you go see peter at the gate and you do this and you do and you go through this this process Mm -hmm. and, and then you know well maybe if you're a buddhist you do this and he, he takes you through all the different beliefs about the way the afterlife is structured. And it's just very amusing. The only thing I did not like was that a lot of this, the um, names and the places are very hard to remember and hard to keep track of. So when you're reading it, it, it becomes a little bit of like a textbook read. But if you can get past that, it's really amusing. And I love Ken's sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of the same sense of humor that he brings to the Jeopardy stage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I know some of you like Mayim, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, she's fine on a sitcom, but on Jeopardy, eh, I don't think so. So it, it, the subtitle is, it's a travel guide to the afterlife. <laughs> where, where you want to sit, where you want to go when you plan your afterlife vacation. <laughs> now, my next book is called Dead Air. And, and, it has, and this is where our paths cross. <laughs> <laughs> it's by Larry Mosey. Uh, many of you know that I started out as a, uh, as a radio DJ. And my first full-time job in radio was in 1976 when I got out of college. And I walked into the doors of WADB, is in Belmar, WADB was a beautiful music radio station. That is, it played what you might refer to as elevator music. And it was very hip contemporary music, but it was very lush, a lot of violins, very heavily instrumental, an occasional vocal here and there. And the radio station was automated, which meant that there was no DJ sitting there spinning records or playing tapes or pushing buttons, but everything was in, uh, in automation, these big... Uh, machines 
that had reel to reel tape players and cartridge players for commercials and, and jingles and newscasts. And it really ran down almost the length of a whole wall. Dead air, by the way, is a term that we use in radio when there's silence. You are taught dead air is heretical. You cannot have it because when there is silence, people reach for the knob and they change the station. So they tell us. So that's where the term dead air comes from. Also, there are no more beautiful music radio stations. There's a few tribute stations on the Internet, but there really aren't any on the air anymore because that kind of music obviously fell out of style. So that's why the title is Dead Air. But it's a fun book, especially if, like me, you come from a radio broadcasting background. Maybe you did beautiful music at one time in your career or automated radio. And it's a fun read because you, you'll go through these pages and believe me, you're going to say, yep, did that. <laughs> did that. Yep. Heard that one. Oh, yeah. They told me that. So it's a it's a good, fun read. So Dead Air by Larry Mosey. Nice job on the book, Larry. The next one, the most fascinating one I have saved for last. Okay. This one and this one was a hard one to get hold of and once i found it i said i have to have it it is called agent of death dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the memoirs of an executioner the book is written by robert g elliott and believe me when i tell you there was nobody better to write a book about execution than robert elliott because he was the state executioner for New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Vermont. They all used the electric chair. And Robert G. Elliott was an electrician. The electric chair was his specialty. And he was very, very good at it. Now, he did not invent the electric chair. No, he did not. Uh, the electric chair was invented in 1896 in okay. Auburn Prison in New York State and used for the first time in the execution of William Kemmler, who murdered his wife and her lover. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a botched... He eventually did die, but they had to burn him several times. Oh, it was really very, very bad. And uh, Robert G. Elliott uh, did his first execution in 1926... And continued until 1939, which I believe is the year that he passed, either 1939, 1940. In his career, 387 convicts, men and women, went to their deaths at the hands of Robert G. Elliott, who was involved in some very high-profile executions, including those of Sacco and Vanzetti, the anarchists, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who were convicted of being spies and selling government security and military secrets to the Soviet Union. Bruno Richard Hauptmann, who was executed here in New Jersey in Trenton, who was convicted for the kidnapping and murder of the baby son of aviation hero Charles Lindbergh. And husband killer Ruth Snyder, who was electrocuted at Sing Sing, Osning, New York, uh, with her boyfriend, Henry Judd Gray, who participated in the killing of her husband. Now, what is really fascinating about the Ruth Snyder execution is that it is the first, and as far as we know, the only known true photograph, not staged, of somebody dying in the electric chair. 
That's pretty When gruesome. the switch is thrown. Mm. And the way that this was done was an, an unknown out-of-town photographer was brought in to photograph the execution. Now, you're not allowed to bring cameras into the execution chamber. So he had a small camera attached to his leg underneath his trousers. Mm-hmm. And when Bob Elliott pulled the switch on Ruth Snyder, sending 2,000 volts through her, the cameraman pulled up the trouser leg and snapped the picture. Wow, pretty sneaky. Of Ruth in the electric chair. Uh, there is a famous electrocution scene in the movie Faces of Death. If you're a Faces of Death fan, I'm sorry to tell you, it's staged. <laughs> it's very well staged. What you see is very accurate. But even the producers of Faces of Death said, well, yeah, we, we faked it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, despite his gruesome occupation... Robert Elliott said he had no trouble sleeping at night. And he didn't consider himself to be a killer. Even though he dispatched 387 men and women, he said that he himself was not a killer because he was carrying out the penalty mandated by the state mm-hmm. in which he served. I'm just a guy doing a job, job. Yeah. as unpleasant as it is. And Elliott said... That, yes, electrocution is a terrible thing to witness, but it was his considered opinion that it is painless. And that when the switch is thrown, you are rendered unconscious in one two hundred fiftieth of a second. Wow. You don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. That's his, mm-hmm. his take on it. And a lot of the medical community concurs with that. Uh, believe it or not, even though it was his living and his career... He was personally deeply opposed to the death penalty Mm. and says in the conclusion of his book that he longs for the day when the death penalty is abolished because he he said it's not a deterrent. It was Robert Elliott's idea that electrocution, capital punishment in general, is about revenge. It's not about justice. It's not about preventing the crime. It's revenge. It's the old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. Now, you might be interested to know that Robert Elliott was paid $150 per execution. Now, that is the equivalent of $2,000 per execution today. And if there were to be multiple executions in one booking, and sometimes there were, he received $50 for every additional execution, which is $827 today. And on January 6th, 1927, Bob Elliott had a bonanza conducting six executions in one day in two different states. Wow. Believe it, me when I tell you, this book is fascinating. Is it grim? Yes. The, the book deals with the ex- many of the executions that Robert Elliott carried out. And he talks about the convict... Uh, how did they go to the chair? Did they, did they fight? Did they cry? Did they scream? Were they stoic? Uh, there was one guy that, that went to the chair. His last name was Apple. And before Robert Elliott threw the switch, the guy said, well, gentlemen, you're about to see a baked apple. <laughs> That's how this guy went That's out of the his world. last words. Robert Elliott said, nobody laughed. 
because it's a grim procedure. Yeah. We're ending somebody's life here. Yeah. He said, but that's the way that this guy went out. Uh, Elliot said it really did hurt him to have to electrocute Ruth <clears throat> Snyder. He was not crazy about the idea of electrocuting women. And there are two that I recall that he electrocuted, Ruth Snyder and Ethel Rosenberg. And there was a rumor that Elliot was haunted uh, in his dreams by images of, of Ruth Snyder. And he said, no, that's, that's not so. Because he actually became a bit of a celebrity himself back in the day. Yeah, you know? because he did so many. Because he did so many. Uh, if you had an execution to do, you called Bob Elliott yeah. you know, to do it. Now, what about, uh, I know it was like Bruno Hotman, he, he always went to the chair saying he didn't do it. Right. And there, as in all the years, there's been investigations and there's been people trying to prove his innocence. What does he say? Does he say anything about you know whether or not he felt that these people were guilty or he, how it bothered him? He never says one way or the other. It's my job is to execute them as quickly and humanely as it can be done, and that's what he said he worried about. You know, are are the electrodes tight? Uh, mm-hmm. it, has the person been prepared? Uh, do we have the sponges? Do we have the, the salt water solution? Mm. Do we, is everything ready to go? And yeah. is, is this going to be a foolproof execution? Electrocuting somebody takes about two minutes in total from the time that they, they finish buckling you in to the time that they lift you out of the chair. It's about two minutes. The book is absolutely fascinating. You read about these different people, uh, how they went to the to the chair, Ruth Ruth uh, Snyder practically had to be carried. Bruno Hauptmann, to the moment they pulled the switch, he said he was innocent. And what is interesting about the Bruno Hauptmann case was uh, the files are still sealed. Mm. And his widow, Anna Hauptmann, spent years trying to get the state of New Jersey to unseal those files, and it's... Still not. It still has not happened. So what does that say to you? Right. What are they afraid of? A lot of the uh, evidence was pretty circumstantial, but as uh, our niece's husband, who is an attorney, has said, circumstantial evidence can and will send you to the chair. And that may have been what happened to, uh, to Bruno Halpin. Plus, he was German. This is the mid-1930s. Uh, Nazi Germany is on the rise. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of anti-German feeling in the country. Right. And he has allegedly murdered the child of an american hero charles Lindbergh. so the guy who was the governor at the time hoffman he he was kind of between a rock and a hard place you know there's a lot of political pressure on him to cook this guy yeah so whether or not bruno hauptman really did it or not we're, we're never going to know right right no i just was curious to, as to how whether any of that played on Elliot's mind, yeah. you know, did he get involved in really reading the cases and, and did he have a conviction in his head as to whether it was a just sentence yeah. or not? No, it seems that he didn't get involved in, yeah. in the nuts and bolts of that. Well, that's interesting. Very interesting. So you see the, the kind of books that Maureen reads <laughs> and the kind of things that I read, just like two totally different things. <laughs> We're such different people. Well, that's what makes for horse yeah. racing. Yeah. <laughs> now, I got this on Amazon, so you, you can find it there. So the, the first time I wanted this, there was a bookstore that uh, 
I think had a first edition of it and they wanted like $500 for oh, it. And I'm like, I'm not paying no. $500 no. for any book. But uh, this is reasonable and you can probably still get it on Amazon. So check it out. I, I think as grim as it sounds, it's interesting reading. Yeah. And actually all of these books are available on Amazon. So not to be commercial, but if you are looking for a place to get them, that's where you, yep. the easiest way to get them is there. So that's going to do it for uh, this edition of the Sonic Boomers podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe, and we'll see you on the next one. Until then, I'm Pete. And I'm Maureen. Goodbye. Bye.